This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out WatchCityResearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. I'm joined this week by Annie Person, who wrote the chapter, If Designing Survey Questions Were Easy, There'd Be No Garbage Data. Welcome, Annie. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. Uh, My name is Annie Person, and I am an experienced design researcher. I have been working in the industry for uh, a little over 15 years now. And in that time, I've worked for small and large software companies covering products ranging from technical illustration software, uh, data management systems, e-commerce, and education technology. Nice. And you mentioned uh, concentrating in research. Are there methodologies that you particularly like? Oh, I love all of them. Um, In fact, (laughs) my favorite is, you know, interviewing and speaking to people. Um, I absolutely love the people interaction. But I also really enjoy the the song and dance of moderating usability testing sessions. Um, There's so much that you're juggling in one session, and I really enjoy the challenge that comes along with that. Agreed wholeheartedly. That's also my favorite part. And, and you mentioned exactly my favorite part of juggling and keeping it all straight and doing it right. That's can be so satisfying. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and can you tell us about your career trajectory? How did you discover UX and how did you wind up where you are today? Yes. So um, for me, it, it actually all began in my undergraduate years at Colorado State University. Uh, it was the first year that the university was introducing technical uh, communication as a specialization in the technical journalism program. So what's interesting about that is, uh, and this may be surprising to some or maybe not, but for me, I was kind of surprised by the fact that there was actually only one course that was specifically on writing. Mm. Uh, The bulk of my curriculum was uh, actually focused on design for uh, print and digital mediums, uh, usability, and web development. And so, um, you know, at the time, I didn't really realize that I was essentially getting a UX education, you know, before the term user experience or information design was, you know, really being used um, as a title for programs. And so when I, uh, when I graduated from Colorado State and entered you know, the workforce, it was about three years into my career as a technical writer that I was asked to lead a, a computer-based training program. And so as a part of that, uh, my employer sent me to an e-learning workshop. And I remember um, when I was in that workshop just falling in love with the storyboarding process and the sketching and understanding the behaviors of how we learn. And so it was from that that I decided to pursue a master's degree in instructional design. And it was was from acquiring that degree that led me into um, education technology. And so I would say probably the bulk of my career has been in the ed tech space. And I was really, really fortunate to um, spend a good portion of that time at Pearson Education where you know, I was fortunate to be on some really progressive uh, project teams. And it was on those teams that I was able to not just be focused necessarily in writing online you know, help, because yeah. that was probably 20% 
of really what I did. But instead, um, I was designing knowledge-based systems and mining data for user insights, uh, conducting usability studies for our, our student advisory board. And then um, <laughs> I got to work directly with customers and uh, be a part of our design partner program, which is when I designed and distributed my very first survey, which, yep. yeah, led me to wanting to write um, about my chapter because, oh, did I learn a lot from that experience. Um, considered myself a good communicator. And when I got my results back, I, I really had a moment of, oh, well, that's not what I wanted. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it can be really eye-opening doing your first survey uh, when you just dive in like that. Absolutely. I've, I'm, I'm guilty as well. Many years ago, I'm right there with you. Uh, it's a nice segue into your chapter. Uh, if designing survey questions were easy, there'd be no garbage data. So, yes. so fill us in. How can we make better surveys? Yeah, well, you know, so essentially, um, I wanted to write this chapter as a quick reference of like best practices that you know anyone can follow when designing surveys because there there's so many like free tools available um, now and so it's very accessible to us and creating surveys can become a very quick and easy and economical means you know to capture data but on the flip side of that. Um, it also makes it very easy to get it wrong. So my goal was to create a list of best practices that you can follow. And this is whether you're new to survey design or just a seasoned practitioner, you know, that needs a refresher um, so that we can all avoid some of those common pitfalls, you know, that generate what I refer to as garbage data. Right. Great. So, yo, know, and that's that's so important because it's so easy to get that garbage data with a, a misworded or leading question so oh, uh, yeah what are some of those best practices yeah so um, one thing I think that is very common um, for people to do is we're all I think um, inherently aware of time and wanting to get the most um, out of a survey as possible in the short amount of time as possible and so as a result of that uh, there's a tendency to put too much into one question and to combine a question using and. And so one best practice is to make sure that you don't combine what would really be two questions into one and that you make sure that you separate that out. And of course, when you start to do that, you will start to see the number and amount of questions that you have grow. So it's really important that you begin the process with first you know, identifying for yourself, you know, what is it that I want to capture data on. And then once you identify what that is, you start to design those questions specifically around those topics. Um, another thing that I've noticed a lot that's common is overlapping ranges. So for example, um, if you were to ask, you know, how many times a week do you walk your dog? Uh, you know, you might say, oh, one to two times a week, two to four times a week, or four to five times a week. Now, the problem with that construct is that what if what if you walk your dog two times a week? And if your option is one to two times a week or two to four times a week, whoever has the answer of two doesn't really have an option to select. Yep. And so whatever responses you get back, you can't work with. Um, it's just garbage yep. <laughs> data at that point, right? Yeah, um, and it may seem, you know, you know, really obvious to folks that, hey, you know, don't have overlapping ranges, but, you know, you see it often, 
where there are those overlapping ranges and we want to make sure that doesn't happen in our research. Yes, absolutely so. And, you know, depending on what the question is, you can either um, use numerical figures and specify those ranges without overlapping the numbers. But sometimes if you're trying to capture more attitudinal data, you can also um, just have a text field and let people enter in that information for you so they don't have to feel restricted by any specific range that you're providing. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about the analysis of that, that qualitative data that you're getting during surveys and how you go about um, pulling out insights from those? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a couple of ways to um, approach that, but ultimately what you want to do is you want to code whatever mm. feedback you get. Now, um, if you're trying to get a sense of like something you know that's aesthetic or um, anything that maybe can be just binary, you can assign a one or a no to it. But sometimes, um, like, and I find this specifically like doing something with Microsoft um, product reaction cards, is you'll have a sense of these are all of the positive adjectives and these are all of the negative adjectives. But then you may have a group that is a little bit gray that you'd put in your maybe column. So if you're doing something that's a little bit more attitudinal or you're trying to get an opinion around an aesthetic and you're having people enter in their own you know, thoughts, you just would need to go and code it accordingly by what you've identified as being positive, negative, or somewhere in between. Yep. And what's really helpful about that as well is if you have another researcher to work with, um, you can help eliminate that bias um, by having more eyes than your own on it to look through. And another effective measure with that as well, um, and this is definitely in the context of using like the Microsoft product reaction cards, is to include your team in that process of identifying what are those positive words and what are those negative words so that you're, you as researcher are not the one who's generating that list, but there's an actual collaborative effort in um, creating that. Yep. You mentioned the compound questions at the beginning in terms of making, making sure that your question really asks only one thing. Mm -hmm. Aside from the word and in and, and a long sentence, are there other things people should be looking out for to catch those compound questions? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, when you've identified your topics, you can, you know, approach it from the point of grouping them by themes. Mm. That's one way to, um, to approach it. And then when you have them grouped by themes and you've identified the indi individual questions, there may be um, a question that's relevant based off of whether they answer, how they answer, whether it's yes or no or whatever it is. And so when you're in a scenario such as that, then you want to incorporate branching so that you can kind of then segue into something that's basically um, related based off of their previous response. Yeah. And that's a really good way to sort of capture something that maybe you originally had combined into one and to break it out. That's a great point. Branching is an overlooked feature of surveys. And uh, I love the idea of, of just breaking it out and branching based on a compound question. Yeah, no, I, I love branching. I think it's a great feature as well. <laughs> yep. So uh, how about some other best practices? You mentioned the compound uh, questions and overlapping ranges. What else? Yeah, um, so another thing that um, is really important is you know to use very simple and familiar words. 
uh, you have to keep in mind that you know people have limited attention span and so when you're creating these surveys um, not only do you want to make sure that you are designing it in such a way that you're taking up at least you know 10 to 12 um, or more around like maybe 8 to 12 minutes of somebody's time but you also want to construct it so that you know they don't have to work that hard at understanding what you're trying to ask yeah. and so a way to um, accomplish that is again to use simple and familiar words um, to be as you know specific and concrete um, with the terminology and to make sure that you know there isn't any degree of ambiguity um, in the meaning of the language because more times than not if you have that then they're going to be interpreting it that way as well and so one of my favorite measures to ensure that you know you have the quality or level of quality of questions in order to get the quality of you know responses that you want is to conduct a, a pilot test and pilot tests are hands down the best eye-opening way to understand how people cognitively work through a survey and so um, you know you can do this with your team um, you can even actually you know recruit family members if you want to because the whole idea around it is to basically have somebody talk out loud about how they're reading the question and their thought process with how they understand the options presented to them mm -hmm. and What's interesting about that is you're not just getting a sense of how they actually understand what you're trying to communicate, but you're also getting some insight into the interaction design element of those answer options. Um, and that's actually very valuable to know as well. Yep. Sounds like you're essentially usability testing your, your survey. <laughs> essentially, yeah. It's a great use of uh, mixed methods there, essentially. Um, you mentioned uh, the making the, re uh, the writing as easy to read as possible. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever use like Flesh Kincaid uh, or a certain reading level to make sure that uh, it's as readable as possible? You know, that is a good question. Um, I personally haven't. I've just relied on pilot testing, but you know, in my former days when I was doing UX writing, I was definitely looking at, you know, leveraging tools that would uh, measure what the reading level is. Um, because you always wanted to target a specific reading level to you know, meet mass audiences and literacy. Mm -hmm. But you absolutely can do that. That's an excellent point. And um, I absolutely think that would be a great thing to do to ensure that you are reaching a reading level that's appropriate for the masses. Do you know of any ways that folks can, can do that easily? Um, there are tools that are out there that do that. I even know something as simple as Microsoft Word mm. does do that for you. I do not recall to memory if Qualtrics has something like that. Yeah, and I always forget that Word will do that for you. The, it's, a, it's a buried feature, but you can, uh, you can get that. Yeah, it's really fascinating if you ever kind of poke around and look at it. It even now includes, um, I believe, like the voice and tone hmm. of your writing, which I think is really interesting. I'd love to know how they measure that. Yeah. So Microsoft Word is rating your voice and tone in your writing? Yes, yes. I know, right? I know. Hmm. Um, getting back to surveys, what are some mm -hmm. other best practices that uh, you want to convey here? Um, yeah, so another one to think about is, uh, you know, creating your response options. Um, you know, if you're going to have um, a more quantitative 
study, you would definitely want to keep your responses all uh, closed. Well, you want to have closed-ended questions. So your responses would be something to the extent of, you know, employing Likert scales. Um, you might want to do multiple choice. But you don't want to mix in too many types of response options. So if you have like, you know, a ranking scale and a Likert scale and multiple choice, you're really just sort of, you know, adding to the person who's taking this to have to think through different response options. So, um, you know, the easier and simpler you can make it on them, the better um, in the quality of the answers that you're getting. And another um, important thing, uh, you know, to be conscious of, I think, is, uh, you know, just making sure again that you are very uh, wary of the, the time. Because if you wanted to include open-ended uh, questions, you have to consider that in one minute, uh, you know, what can people answer? So maybe like they can answer three to five close-ended questions in that one minute time frame, mm. but it could take up to a full minute for somebody to answer an open-ended question. So you need to just sort of factor in all those elements, which again goes back to pilot testing, because that's a really great way, again, to get a sense of, okay, I've designed this survey. I'm guessing from the amount of questions I have and the mixture of open and ended questions that I've included, that it'll take about 10 minutes. Right. Well, you go and you pilot test that, and you might find it takes people only maybe eight minutes to complete, or it might be, you know, 12 or 15. Yeah. So that's another way to kind of um, gauge, you know, where you need to maybe um, scale back. A good point about uh, the difference between how many questions a person can tackle within a minute time span, whether it's uh, essentially quant or qual. Um, uh, no, a shout out for saying Likert correctly, because <laughs> right? it, it, it has to be said in this particular podcast that it is Likert and not Likert. And um, shout out to Tom Tullis for teaching generations of Bentley students that because he actually contacted the Likert family in order to find out the correct pronunciation. And so... I think a bunch of us are particular about that today. Today, <laughs> yes, we are, and thank you for mentioning it. It is, um, it's something that I always, you know, keep um, to mind all the time whenever I hear it said. So, um, it's a really fun factoid to carry with you for sure. Yes. Um, that said, though, tell us about labeling Likert scales. Do you have any thoughts on best practices for labeling these to convey, uh, you know, what they mean? Yes. So. Um, you know, there's debating literature out there, and in fact, I think um, there was recently something just published that uh, was kind of counter to a practice I personally like to employ, which is to keep it between five and seven options for a Likert scale. But I did recently see an article published saying that having it up to 10, even as much as 20, really doesn't impact it. Now, um, that's, you know, I think the nature of our industry, which is great, is that there's always going to be conflicting literature out there. Right. And it's important for us to continue testing, you know, um, all of these, um, you know, like practices. But for, you know, for the purposes of today's discussion, um, you know, I would suggest staying within the five to seven range for any liquid skill that you're going to use. Agreed. 20 sounds like a lot. <laughs> right? I know. I know. I think, uh, you know, another part that I think is important for people to know, and I see this, I see this happen a lot, is sometimes um, participants want to please, right? Or they want to do 
uh, you know, what's socially um, acceptable. Mm -hmm. You don't want to give people the option to say, I don't know. Uh, Mm. There's definitely a lot of research out there um, that shows that, you know, people will select it for either ambivalence or self-protection. So, you know, another way to um, to kind of uh, to approach that is to instead give the option of not not applicable or just, you know, don't use. And that's a, a nice way because then people won't skip over the question and you've kind of, um, you know, resolved that possibility of them just answering to, you know, satisfy or please. Right. And or that they don't have a better choice. Uh, I've seen exactly. surveys where there is no no option or I don't do this and um, people forget about that when designing surveys. Yeah, no, absolutely they do. And, you know, this is um, this is an interesting example that I was actually, because you mentioned Tom Tullis, I actually was just uh, in a conversation with his daughter, Cheryl, and uh, she was sharing with me something that she noticed from a survey, which was it was it was um, identifying gender. Hmm. And, you know, now that um, we're in this awesome age of being so much more inclusive and gender aware, this particular survey did not just list out in multiple choice the options for you to select from, but they also allowed for you to select more than one option. And I thought that was incredibly awesome. I have never encountered that myself personally. So, um, you know, kudos to Cheryl for sharing that because I think that's a really cool, um, you know, tip and approach to think about when, you, uh, when you're constructing your survey. Right. Um, it's not necessarily a, a radio button uh, that we should be thinking about anymore. It, it is that, that multi-select checkbox. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, just to sort of build on that, um, one thing I think that uh, I personally like to do in surveys is to take them. Sure. <laughs> Any opportunity I have to take one, I actually will click that button and proceed because I'm curious and I want to see how did they design this. And so um, it's a really great way to either identify you know good practice or bad practice. Um, unfortunately, I think the you know survey design world can get a bad rap because there are unfortunately so many bad surveys out there. And a lot of people may not take the time to conduct a pilot test. Right. And so, you know, unfortunately, the, um, the result or the outcome of that is that we tend to um, just sort of ignore them. And because we've all maybe have encountered a lot of bad surveys, um, the response rate, you know, suffers as a result of that. Yeah. So I think, you know, hopefully this chapter will provide some of those best practices and tips for um, for people to rem- be mindful of so that we can hopefully, you know, make a difference and start a trend of creating more um, better designed surveys, right? So uh, that so folks don't feel so dismissive um, in any time a prompt comes up and just wants to take a few mo- moments of your time. Yep, yep. Now I wish I had something like this that was quick and useful when I first started my, you know, survey building years ago. So thank you for all of this. Yes, Um, absolutely. In our final segment here, we'd like to get a career tip for our listeners, whether they're first breaking into UX or have uh, lots of experience. Do you have a career tip for folks? Yeah, um, I do. My, my advice is to be the CEO of your career development. Hmm. And, you know, what I mean by that is, 
you don't want to limit your experiences to the projects that you know are either from school if you're still studying UX or from your actual current job. Um, you know, there's going to be limitations and you don't need to limit your experience by what you're doing in your work or school because UX is all around us, right? And so um, you can create a use case from all the opportunities that are really just like presenting themselves to you just from the experience you have from you know your home appliances uh, to going through a drive-in or a restaurant um, or even just like grocery store shopping. Yep. At the end of the day, you know, it's all about your thought process and how you approach either research, UX writing, or design. And I think it's so important to expand outside of what you currently do and to continually develop yourself and look for those opportunities. Um, and I only say that because I know for me personally, having been in educational technology for some time, I didn't want to become saturated in that industry. Mm. So I was always seeking and looking for opportunities outside of that. So I had more breadth as a researcher and I could take examples from different industries and different approaches and bring that into how I think about my problem solving. Absolutely. There's so much we can learn from research and design in different domains and applying it to our own work uh, in the future. And that's what it's all yeah. about is, you know, as you said, design is all around us, good and bad learning from that and uh, applying it. Absolutely. And we become more critical the more we're in this industry, don't we? Because we're aware. <laughs> well, I, I always say that this, this job ruins you. <laughs> right. But you're surrounded by the best people in the world. That's what I love about our community is that um, everybody is so generous about giving, um, you know, whether it's just giving time to mentor, um, to share ideas and how they approach things. And um, I think that, you know, it's important to give back and to uh, develop those relationships. I think it's absolutely the best industry you can be in. Absolutely. Uh, agreed wholeheartedly. We're, we're very lucky to be in an industry where people are so giving. Um, yeah. And that's what we're doing. We, we help people, and so we help each other. Yes, absolutely. That's what we do. You're right. Well, great. Um, thank you so much, Annie. This has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Dan. This has been wonderful. I was really excited about talking to you today, so thank you so much. My pleasure. This has been fun. My guest today has been Annie Person, the author of If Designing Survey Questions Were Easy, There'd Be No Garbage Data. I'm your host, Dan Berlin. Thanks for listening. The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.